Aphrodite is the 25th film written and directed by Woody Allen, first released in 1995. Woody Allen stars as Lenny Weinrib. Together with his wife Amanda, played by Helena Bonham Carter, the two adopt a child who turns out to be especially gifted. When Lenny gets obsessed by his son's genetic heritage, he tracks down the mother only to discover she's a lowly prostitute named Linda Ash, played by Mira Sorvino. Woody Allen in the 90s was overcoming the turmoil of his private life to create some of his most fun films. Mighty Aphrodite came in the middle of this successful run, with memorable performances and lots of laughs. This week, episode 19, we talk about 1995's Mighty Aphrodite, how it was conceived, how it was made, and how it's really quite good. Spoilers are everywhere, so watch the film and then come back. Take, for instance, the case of Lady Weinrib. A tale as Greek and timeless as fate itself. Family was on the brain for Woody Allen in 1994. He was still in the midst of a brutal custody battle with Mia Farrow when this film was being written. He was on the verge of losing all access to his daughter Dylan and his son Satchel. And it was his relationship with Dylan where this film starts. Allen started thinking about the age-old argument of nature versus nurture when it came to his adopted daughter. Who were her real parents? And would knowing a child's real parents tell us anything about the child. It was an area ripe for comedy as the story could involve people from different cultures and classes or clashing. Coming off the cartoonish, costume-driven period piece that was Bullets Over Broadway, Alan wanted to make something more down-to-earth. So it's back to contemporary New York in contemporary clothes and contemporary concerns. And it was a good time for Alan to do something less staged. This is a time when American independent cinema was exploding into the mainstream and Alan found himself a part of it. Groundbreaking films like Pulp Fiction and Clerks were released one year earlier. P.T. Anderson, Wes Anderson, Richard Linklater, Steven Soderbergh and so many others were rising up. Other legends like Jim Jarmusch and David Lynch found themselves leaders of a new scene. The films of this movement were edgier and ruder than the mainstream, but managed to attract large audiences and critical acclaim. This new generation of directors was inspired by Alan, and was teaching a new audience the language of cinema. Sweetland Films, Alan's film studio, did a deal for US distribution with Miramax. They only handled the sale of the finished film in one country, but it was the same Miramax that would be the most acclaimed film studio in the country. So whereas Bullets Over Broadway could be turned into a family musical without much work, Mighty Aphrodite was able to be something ruder and edgier. You're married, aren't you? <clears throat> How can you tell that? Because you got that look. That look? What, what, what look is that? That look like it's been a long time since you had a great blowjob. Oh, that look? I... At the heart of the story are Lenny, played by Alan, and his wife, Amanda, played by Helena Bottom Carter. The couple adopt Max, but their marriage goes through a valley, as they say in the film. So Lenny distracts himself by looking into his gifted child's parentage. Lenny's journey leads him to Linda, Max's real mother. She's a hooker, in all sorts of trouble, and Lenny tries to help her out. After dealing with her pimp and getting her a date in lots of funny ways, the two connect and sleep together. The film ends with the ironic twist that both Lenny and Linda are raising each other's child. It's a simple story, a little comedy drama with a modest cast, modern New York and very straightforward. But Alan added to that straightforward story a few elements that would make it really special. Whilst writing his story of Lenny, Alan kept seeing allusions to classical Greek tragedy in his little New York indie drama. Alan's story shares the big themes of some Greek legends, 
Themes of parentage and fate, like in the story of Oedipus, whose destiny was to murder his father and marry his mother. So Alan decided to lean into it. Alan references Oedipus and Achilles and all sorts of stories throughout the film, but that's just the start. The Greek chorus is a very old idea. The nameless mob who echo and comment on the proceedings of a play. They were pretty standard in classical Greek plays. Alan had played around with bringing a Greek chorus to film when he tried to adapt his own short story, Retribution, which can be found in the collection Side Effects, into a film. That short story was a tragic comic farce about a very Woody Allen surrogate based around his relationship with Louise Lasser. Retribution was never made, so Alan took the idea from his other screenplay and put it in what would be Mighty Aphrodite. A different film, but the effect would be the same. The chorus would elevate this little tale to Greek tragedy by using the trappings and tropes of a Greek tragedy, and also bring some comedy by having such an odd idea in a modern film. Of course this is a Woody Allen Greek chorus, so they are also hilarious. Allen makes them pompous and then puts them in ridiculous situations, such as seeing them stand by the side of a highway. Throughout the film we meet characters from Greek legend. They are silly versions of real characters like Oedipus, Tiresias, Cassandra, and the voice of Zeus at least. Oh my god, it's more serious than we thought! It's very serious. Her marriage to Lenny is in crisis. With the passage of time, even the strongest bonds become fragile. Great, fellas. It sounds like a fortune cookie. Oh, Zeus, most potent of gods, we implore thee. We need your help. Zeus, great Zeus, hear us, hear us. We call out to thee. Um, this is Zeus. I'm not home right now, but you can leave a message and I'll get back to you. Please start speaking at the tone. Call us when you get in. We need help. Funny though that the goddess of love mentioned in the film's title, Aphrodite, is nowhere to be seen. If you pay attention, you see Alan is slowly breaking rules every time the chorus appears. First, they are in the ruins of an amphitheatre, relating a story. But they use modern slang. But then Lenny turns up there. So maybe it's a dream in Lenny's head. Then they turn up in New York. But it could still all be spirits that only Lenny can see. But then they are helping passing pieces of paper. Tiresias is dressed like a homeless man for some reason. Some of the humour comes from the clash of classical arts and modern silliness, which reminds me of Monty Python. Alan was a fan of the British comedy troupe, and they share a lot of the same humour DNA. The silliness includes when Lenny meets Tiresias outside a restaurant named Acropolis, or in one of the last scenes of the chorus, Oedipus is just going to town on his own mother's neck. So weird and so funny. And if you pay really close attention, you realise Alan is using the chorus to move the story along, just like they did in ancient Greek theatre. It's a good plot device to just have them say that time has passed or certain events have happened, without getting too bogged down. It keeps the film moving along. The Greek chorus also end up being a literal chorus when they stage a musical number. Again, Alan is breaking the rules. We've seen an hour of the film, we know it's not a musical, but no, Alan breaks the rules wonderfully when the chorus breaks out into a version of You Do Something To Me, a song written by Cole Porter. Something that simply mystifies me Hypnotize me 
Alan is clearly having fun with it. It's never explained, nor does it need to be. As a filmmaking device, it's as fun as the fourth wall breaking stuff in Annie Hall. And it's an element of Alan's filmmaking that has been missing for almost a decade, a sense of mischief. This is very much Lenny's story. He's played by Woody Allen, and yes, he's a lot like Woody Allen's other lead roles. There's a couple of interesting differences, though. Lenny is a bit more of a blokey bloke than Allen usually plays. He's a sports writer, which is a bit blokier than Allen's usual roles. He gets things done, like the way he tracks down Linda. He's not in therapy, and he's not a bag of nerves. He's not very internal, either. He's a man of action. There's a nice sequence when Lenny tracks down Linda through old addresses and contacts. It's not a funny sequence. It's kind of about Lenny's character, who is dogged and competent and kind of clever in the way that he finds her. It's understandable because things are going smoothly. You know, that's why you will always be a chorus member. Because you don't do anything. I act. I take action. I make things happen. Lenny's also not a constant one-liner machine like Alan's other characters. But this is Woody Allen, so the dialogue is sparky, and there's plenty of wordplay and quotable lines. And of course, Alan gives himself plenty of great ones. Who's the boss between you and Mommy? Who's the boss? You have to ask that? You don't know who the boss is between me and Mommy? No. I'm the boss, okay? Mommy, mommy is only the decision maker. But a lot of the film's funniest moments come elsewhere. There's a couple of physical comedy scenes. It's been a while since Alan has done one of these. But the scene at the adoption office when he's trying to steal papers is Alan at his physical comedy best, and the scene runs unbroken for a couple of minutes. The other source of humour is that clash of cultures. Halfway into the film, it really stops becoming about who is Max's mother, and more, how do our characters become happy? It becomes more like Pygmalion, the George Bernard Shaw play that Alan also alludes to in Magic in the Moonlight. Lenny takes Linda under his wing and much of the middle of the film is just the two of them, like Lenny helping Linda pick out a play to study or what to wear on a date. Oh, I can tell you're not too impressed. No, 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 I just thought, you know, it's a very odd part for you to choose. Why? You know, because it's a Philadelphia story. But I lived in Philadelphia. What has that got to do with it? I know the city. What, who cares? It's a, you know, you pick a part like this, you should get something closer to yourself. It wouldn't be such a struggle. It's easy to love the naive Linda. She's hilarious almost cartoonishly hilarious, but she fits in with the film. Sure, we are kind of laughing at her, but not out of meanness. What's really going on is she tries. There's a lovely scene when Lenny and Linda go to the track and she loses money and she cries. She wanted to impress Lenny. What's important for us as the audience is seeing people try more than seeing people succeed. It doesn't take very long for us to just want this girl to be happy. If, if it's the money, I'll, I'll lend you the money. I'll, no, it's I'll, not I can the money, you. Lenny. I don't care about the money. I just wanted to win so badly. What do you want to win for? We're just out here having a good time. You, you Because I win. wanted to impress you. Impress me? What? You know, that's, you're not running in the race. <laughs> what, what are you going to have to impress me? I'm. Yeah, but I wanted to show you I could pick a winner. Hey, listen, my horse didn't win either, you know. Come on, you, you do impress me. I, you're attractive, you're, you're, you're quick, you, you, you have a lot of energy, you're obviously a state-of-the-art philatrix, you what? know, so I'm, nothing, nothing. I'm impressed. Take Lenny, me. don't say nothing. Alan really ramps up our feelings for Linda by introducing Kevin, played by Michael Rappaport. I love how Alan sets this up. They seem like a match, but Lenny has to do a lot of lying. 
So no matter how much we want Linda to be happy, and we enjoy seeing the two caught and start to make a go of it, we're worried it's going to fall apart. We are tense in those scenes, especially when Linda starts lying about her life. Alan makes us invested in Linda, and we are torn between this nice enough Kevin, or a charming prince we're yet to meet, or might never meet. It helps that Kevin is charmingly hilarious. But it's not right. It starts from a dishonest place. It's strong writing on Alan's part. He makes us feel torn. Are you not that fucking rocker? I'm gonna go marry an onion farmer and do hair in Wimpsville. Wimpsville, not Wimpsville. It's so perfect. He's a, he's a nice, sweet guy. He's great. Oh, come on, forget it. He's perfect, though. He's bright. You'll, you'll he think he's bright. He is a fucking bright. onion farmer. That's okay. You know, he's a nice kid. More important, he's honest and decent. And don't offer to give him a blowjob in the first five minutes because he thinks you're a hairdresser. You lied. I you shouldn't just lie. Just do what I'm telling you. Just listen to me for once. Then there's the rudeness. For a man who made two comedies with the word sex in the title, Alan's recent films had not been terribly rude. He moved away from those early farcical sex comedies to become a more serious filmmaker. Here, he more than makes up for it. That humour again is in The Clash of Cultures. Linda throws in lots of references to hardcore sex in casual conversation, and watching Lenny react is very funny. Sorvino delivers the lines beautifully. Well, yeah, sure I did. No, I did things. I, I waited on tables, I worked in a massage parlour, I did phone sex. Now and then, I would, you know, turn a few tricks in order to make some dough. And one day my friend Susie calls me and she asked me if I want to be in a film, something called Snatch Happy. And I said, sure. And I would, remember, I was very nervous because I'd never done it in front of people with a camera before, you know? And so there I am on the first day on the set and there's this guy fucking me from behind, right? And there's these two huge guys dressed like cops in my mouth at the same time. And I remember thinking to myself, I like acting. I want to study. Also funny is Lenny's face off with a pimp. It's not just seeing Lenny in a dive bar that's funny, it's the payoff of seeing the thugs courtside at the Knicks game next to celebrities. Of course in real life, Alan is a huge basketball fan and was often seen courtside in these years. That I use for business purposes. I got an investment in Linda. No question, I honor that, but but by now she probably would page you tenfold or twentyfold. Don't be so fucking sure because you don't know what the fucking numbers are. It's okay, it's a point well taken. Excuse me, you're, you're excuse me. I, I understand what you're saying. Is that, is that a, a Pellegrino? Can I? Because you've, you've bent my throat now a little bit and I, the windpipe used to hang straight until this morning. Lenny doesn't really learn the answers he's looking for. Mainly because Alan doesn't really fall down either way. He doesn't believe there's any explanation for human nature. In that part of the film, the audience are left unsatisfied. The search for answers ends up being a bit of a MacGuffin. It's not what stays with us at the end of the film. Alan, as usual, is more interested in character than plot. We see Max as a newborn and then Max as roughly six or seven. I like how Alan doesn't even bother to make it feel like time has passed or that we are in the late 80s at the start. No one ages or looks or dresses any differently. It doesn't matter. Don't go any further! I know what you're thinking, Lenny, and forget it. How can I forget it? The thought's been put into my head. Oh, cursed fate! Certain thoughts are better left undunk! I'll bet this kid has a dynamite mother. What makes you think he didn't inherit everything from his father? Everything? That's very unlikely, but I'm going to find out. Let sleeping dogs lie! I'll bet she's great. Curiosity, that's what kills us. Not muggers or all that bullshit about the ozone layer. It's our own hearts and minds. I'm going to find out. Please, Lenny, don't be a schmuck! 
Less interesting for me is the whole Amanda subplot. She's unhappy and there's the temptation of her boss Jerry, played by Peter Weller. Finally, she has to leave to sort out her feelings. But then she comes back, for no real reason. I'm okay with this. It's not supposed to be a big revelation and marriages go through ups and downs, but it does kind of just happen. The story of Amanda and Lenny is sweet, but it's not the heart of the film. Although the resolution, where she somehow enters the world of the Greek chorus herself, is fun. She even says she's been looking for Lenny everywhere, as if she can freely enter and leave. What is going on? It doesn't really matter when it's done so cheerfully. I don't know. I just know that suddenly I really miss Amanda. But wait! See who approaches! There you are. Where have you been? I, I've been looking for you all over. Just out drinking and thinking oh. about everything. Oh, honey, I'm sorry. I, uh, I was up all night thinking how much I hurt you and, and how much it messed us up for good and the, the thought of not being with you. I love you. I don't love Jerry at all. We have to put things right. We whatever has to be done. Then there's the ending. Linda finds happiness out of nowhere when a helicopter pilot lands near her and asks her for help. But it's in keeping with the Greek theme. It's supposed to be a deus ex machina. Deus ex machinas get a bad rap. It's a storytelling device from ancient Greece that means God in the machine. Basically, it's the thing that swoops in out of nowhere to save the day. Take the bacteria that kills the aliens in War of the Worlds, or the way all the alien invaders in the Avengers die when the heroes blow up their mothership. It's sometimes a sign of bad writing, but sometimes it's used well to make a point and often an ironic point. It's also used a lot for comic effect, and Alan goes towards that angle here, that out of nowhere, if you're lucky, you'll find love. And in the tradition of ancient Greek farce, Linda gets a very handsome deus ex machina. Lenny! I don't believe this. What, what are you doing here? What, what have you done? What happened to you? I'm living in Connecticut. I, I'm married, and, and, and my husband, Don, is a helicopter pilot. You're kidding. What did you There's, of course, the ironic twist of an ending, that Linda and Lenny end up with each other's kids. Alan waves away the plot contrivances to get there. It's never set up earlier, and it's all explained in a line or two. It was the last thing that Alan wrote for the script. It makes for a fitting thematic end that everyone gets a happy ending. Alan hates happy endings, but this one has the right dash of bitter with the sweet. I love the detail that years later, Linda is still wearing the coat that Lenny chose for her on her first date with Kevin. Man, I can't That's so good. So you see, you're, you're married? You're, this is yours? Yes, look at her. Oh, gosh, she's adorable. She's adorable. Uh, Very is, is, is that Max? Max? This is Max. Hello. Max, say hello. Is this a friend? Hi, I'm Linda. How do you do? Nice to meet you. What a handsome boy. Amanda must be very beautiful. And she's, you've got to have a very handsome husband because she has a great face. This is a wonderful Woody Allen script. It's funny without losing cleverness. It's filled with memorable characters. But most of all, it's positive and romantic. It's a hallmark of Alan's work in the 90s that despite his court battles with Mia Farrow at the time, he was making some of his most inviting films. There's just a likeableness to this film. There's a very silly joke at the start of the film where Lenny works up to this firm no on the phone about adopting a baby. Alan really builds up to it in the writing. The discussion escalates. And of course, one second after the no, we cut to a scene of Lenny and Amanda and a new baby. 
You can see the joke coming from a mile off if you're paying attention, but it's still likeable. I told Carolyn to be on the lookout. She's experienced with adoption. She knows what she's doing. It's a boy, healthy, born this morning, no strings, if we act quickly. Look, look, I, I gotta put my foot down. I, 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 you know, if you want to discuss this another time, we can, but if you gotta have a fast answer, it's definitely no. If there's any sign that Alan was making his own version of a crowd pleaser, it's the second musical number. It ends with the chorus singing When You're Smiling, as we montage through all the characters' happy endings. Each one is sweet and makes your heart full. Even Kevin is with a new woman we've never seen before, and we just know she's the woman of his dreams. Alan makes the point that everyone gets what they want here. Kevin even waves at the camera. That's how audience-pleasing this film gets. The film literally waves you goodbye. But they, they have each other's child, and they don't know. Yes, yes, isn't life ironic? Life is unbelievable. Miraculous, sad, wonderful. For the first time in 20-odd years since 1975's Love and Death, Woody Allen shot outside the US. Allen had not shot more than a few hours from his home in almost 20 years. The scenes were, of course, the Greek chorus ones. Nothing around New York could match the ancient ruins in Allen's mind. Then he remembered an ancient amphitheatre that he saw in 1971 when promoting bananas in Sicily. This was big for Allen on screen, and it showed that maybe he wasn't so set in his ways. In truth, Allen loves Europe, and so did his soon-to-be wife, Soon Yi, so he just didn't really like to shoot there. But as a couple, they were travelling there more and more, and even doing press for Alan's films whilst there. But I assume the natural set that is the Teatro Greco in Tormina, Sicily, was just too good to pass up. The shooting went fine, although Alan was rightly terrified of having Sicily's active volcano, Mount Etna, in the near distance. Alan cast mainly extras for the chorus in Sicily, but he did fly over a couple of actors for important roles. These include David Ogden Steers, who had worked with Alan before, and Olivia Dukakis. Neither one appeared in any of the New York segments. Dukakis was still bitter years later when asked about it, saying that all she got from working with Alan was a holiday with her husband. Children are serious stuff. Look, here's a man who killed his father and slept with his mother. I hate to tell you what they call my son in Harlem. I suspect that more scenes with the chorus got cut. Because we also know that Alan cut out a long sequence with Amanda that showed how the two got together over a long weekend in an empty city. There's still a few clues left in the film, like a flashback montage of scenes between Lenny and Amanda, and a line from the chorus saying how Amanda and Lenny's relationship was fate, which is not really set up. I also suspect that Alan made a decision, probably in the edit, to focus more on Linda and Lenny. Linda really becomes the heart of the film, and a lot of that comes down to Mira Sorvino. Sorvino had appeared in a couple of independent films, most notably Witt Stillman's 1994 film, Barcelona. Sorvino had auditioned for Alan before, for another film, and actually played the Diane Keaton role in an amateur production of Play It Again, Sam. She said she's been an Alan fan her whole life. She did an audition in New York for Alan for the role of Linda, and didn't get the part. In fact, the role was tough to cast, and Alan went to England with his casting director, Juliet Taylor, to look at more actors, as well as to look at posh British actors for the Greek chorus. Sorvino was in England at the time and managed to get a second audition. She turned up looking like Linda, with big hair and big boots, and got the part. When she turned up on day one of production, she started doing that voice. 
Alan had a go with it, but later he said that he was worried if she could sustain it. But she made it part of her character, and not only does it not become annoying, Alan expanded the film to be so much about Linda. Linda Ash? Yeah, that's right. I'm Lenny. Hello, Lenny. Come on in. You're, you're Linda Ash, right? Yeah. Because we spoke on the phone? Yeah. Are you okay? You look all white. I'm okay. Yeah. Do you want something to drink? <laughs> Maybe do you have a little Perrier or something? What? A little, little, just a little tap water or something? Oh, sure, I have that. You, you're definitely Linda Ash? Yeah. What's the matter? Are you a stroke victim or something? I told you three times. I'm Linda Ash. Sorvino is hilarious and often brilliant. She's still comparably inexperienced, and working with Woody Allen means long scenes and not many takes. She nails the long dialogue scenes, sells the jokes while dressed in clothes that can't be comfortable with no cuts. And not only no cuts, often in scenes between Lenny and Linda, Alan keeps the camera on Linda the whole time. It works from a story point of view. We see what Lenny sees. But Sorvino never breaks character. In fact, Sorvino would start getting into character before the scene even started, which Alan found amusing. Sorvino's also kind of fearless. She's not afraid to be gross or dirty. She's not afraid to come across really stupid. We are supposed to feel uncomfortable around her, but we wouldn't love her character so much if Sorvino didn't nail it. The way she delivers a wry smile before a punchline, or the way she breaks down and cries, all in the same take, is incredible. More incredible when she later said that she was crippled with shyness during the shooting. You don't see anything but confidence in her performance. She knows what she's doing. She was rightly lauded with awards, winning an Academy Award for her work. She had a hard time after this and never quite followed up the critical acclaim. She's embarrassed of her work with Alan now for reasons that have nothing to do with the film. Her next big success, Romy and Michelle's high school reunion, also served to typecast her as stupid. And that was her career, stuck in a box. I don't know why usually, you know, I'm just a picture of health. Yeah? You work out? <clears throat> not, not, not religiously. Oh, I'm not religious either. Mostly my folks were Episcopalian. Oh, are they? So... so the other big acting revelation for me is the arrival of Michael Rappaport. He's a comedian who had lots of small roles. Here, he immediately gets what Alan is going for. He's so casually stupid. What I love is how confident he is, even though he's clearly an idiot. That he's trying to come across as smart makes his performance even funnier. I really like a story that comedian David Cross tells about Rappaport's casting. I'm not sure if Cross was up for the role of Kevin himself, but he had auditioned for Alan unsuccessfully, as did many up-and-coming comedians from all around America. And for Cross, it was the casting of Rappaport that blew his mind. That Alan would look at the sea of comic talent in the US and pick out Rappaport to say, you're it. Rappaport would work with Alan two more times. I had 16 fights and I won them all but 12. Oh, I'm impressed. Yeah. How long were you doing here? I understand how Olympia Dukakis feels like she didn't get much of a role, and that's true for most of the chorus. F. Murray Abraham gets to do a little more, and is very funny playing it straight as the chorus leader. He actually beat out several British Shakespearean types for the role. What are you doing, White Rib? Confuse me, she's coming back in a minute. You are breaking the law. The law, there's a higher law. I can find out who my son's mother is. The judge won't see it that way. Keep looking out for me, will you? For Christ's sake. I, I believe you're the chorus. Do you want to look out? I don't want to. Get your friend Bud to help you. I can't help you. 
help me, but you know, Ellie and Amanda are friendly. Why can't keep a secret? Why is it a secret? Why can't Amanda know? What argument am I getting into with you, Amanda? Because she wouldn't understand. Uh, you're guilty. The other great chorus members with speaking parts are Danielle Furland and Jack Warden, both Alan regulars. They get to do funny cameos, and that's about it. This just isn't an ensemble film. It's very much about a handful of characters. God sakes, you're, you know, you're such a Cassandra. I'm not such a Cassandra. I am Cassandra. That's who I am. I gotta check this thing y- out. You'll be sorry. I'm telling you, quit now. Oh, and don't let Amanda talk you into buying the house next door. This place? Yes, I see big problems with beach erosion and a heavy mortgage. Helena Bonham Carter is nice in her role, doing a flawless American accent. She had a lot of her role cut and doesn't get many standout moments. I love her in so many things, but she's a little thankless in this role. This was still a few years before she broke out in films like Fight Club, so this was a stepping stone for her, especially in America. I'm sure she knows all about the stories of Diane Keaton choosing her own clothes for Annie Hall and Manhattan. This is very much a dressed down script, so I assume she brought her own style to her character. We know from her acting role that she loves a good dress up. Without getting in the way, she's always very well dressed here. Lots of strange hats. In a lot of the Amanda scenes is her boss Jerry, played by Peter Weller. I suspect he's also a victim of editing. He doesn't do much, but if you cast Peter Weller, he's obviously the bad guy, right? Mm, mm. No, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I can't do this, I can't. Why are you fighting this? Because I'm married and I have a family and, and, and I love Lenny. I love him. So who are you trying to convince, you or me? Also slightly wasted is Paul Giamatti, in a small, very early role. I bring him up because he would turn out to be so great. He's a perfect kind of actor for Woody Allen, a naturalist who can convey so much emotion. It's a shame that, so far, he's never had a chance to really show it in a Woody Allen film. Imagine him as Rifkin in Rifkin's Festival or even Harry Block. He did appear again in a small role in Deconstructing Harry. Maybe one day we'll see him in a major Woody Allen role. There was a Leslie St. James uh, who was a member of the Screen Extras Guild. So that's that. So, so what are you telling me? That, 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 that she was a movie extra or a stage extra? Yeah, that's all I have. Not to say that the male lead here was played by a slouch. I kind of love Alan's performance here. He's charming, confident and fun. Alan has real screen presence here as we follow him almost exclusively. He's not wild and crazy like in Deconstructing Harry. He's not silly and manic like in To Rome With Love. He's not bitter and aloof like Stardust Memories. He's just giving his own version of a naturalistic performance. Some of the best male actors in Alan's films are casual and natural like John Cusack and Jesse Eisenberg. Alan here shows me that if he was younger, he could have starred in films like High Fidelity or Adventureland. He's quietly really great. You know, I, I don't know. I, I, I remember how great it used to be with me and Amanda in our first apartment. You know how romantic it was. And, you, you know, in those days, it was, it was just a, a kick shopping together, or, you know, just, just walking the New York streets. This was the first of four films in a row for Alan that were set in contemporary Manhattan. So what, you might say? It's Woody Allen. Aren't all his films set in New York? Well, actually, apart from the run of Annie Hall, Interiors and Manhattan in the late 70s, Alan never shot more than two films in a row on modern Manhattan streets. He's always jumping into a different time period or making a film just in a studio. This run of four is a record and I bring it up because this was a couple of years after Alan was on the front page of everything when he and Mia Farrow broke up. 
And for all the people who discovered him in the 90s, they found a guy who was busy cementing his reputation as Mr. New York. There's lots of fun New York locations here. Firstly, there's food. So many of Alan's films start with people eating, and there are so many legendary New York places to eat. Add Gino's, an Italian restaurant that was frequented by celebs, to the list. It's where our characters are at the start of the film. And the rest is a typically diverse tour of the city. It's great to see the inside of Madison Square Garden in the middle of a Knicks game. We go from Belmont Park racetrack to fine art galleries. There's the gorgeous Namburg Bandshell in Central Park. And then there's cinema's second best use of the legendary toy store, FAO Schwartz, second to its use in Tom Hanks' Big. Sadly, it's now gone and turned into an Apple store. Geno's is gone too. These next few Allen films are a great snapshot of the Big Apple, the way it was, and never will be again. It's nice to see the signs for old musicals in Times Square, or the way people used to dress, or the way the buses used to look. Allen continues his important work of chronicling the story of New York City. You're probably getting the sense that I really like this film. Another reason I think it's such a solid entry is that Alan's behind the camera team is so solid. Juliet Taylor did her usual amazing work on casting. Just look at Mira Sorvino, Michael Rappaport and Paul Giamatti. Susan E. Morse was editing, Robert Greenhut producing, Santo Laquasto on production design. Laquasto and the prop team must have had fun finding all the sex-related props that fill Linda's apartment. I have a, a beautiful apartment. Oh, thank you. I did it myself. Oh. Oh, let me show you something I just got. That. Oh. Isn't it a pisser? Oh, yes, it's, it's, it's magnificent. Oh, oh, yeah, I got a great sense of humor. That's something you're going to find out about me. I'm funny and I can take a joke. You know, a lot of people can't take a joke. Oh, no, I can. I, they, they say that about me, oh, too, yeah? that, that I have a good oh, sense good. of humor. Oh, good. Well, then you'll like this. Look, I just got this. Somebody gave it to me. See? As the mainspring goes back and forth, the bishop keeps fucking her in the ass. It's a genuine antique and it keeps perfect time. Oh my goodness, it's a disgusting... Cinematographer Carlo De Palma was coming up to nine years of working with Alan. They both know how to make the film look. I love the way they shoot the bustling streets. The camera work in those long shots are fluid and graceful. There's always interesting colours and backgrounds. De Palma loves mixing the raw with the beautiful. Take the shot of the pimps at the basketball game, which almost looks like documentary footage, compared to the gorgeous musical number shots. And let's talk about the music. Outside of those musical numbers, this film isn't one with a great musical character. And that's a hallmark of Alan's 90s films. The film opens with Neo Menor, a track by acclaimed Greek bazooki player and composer Vasilis Tsitsanis. It brings a different flavour to Alan's usual American jazz which makes it all the more a shame that Neo Menor is not used again, and the rest of the musical score is Alan by numbers, by really obvious numbers at that. At one point, Alan uses Count Basie's Take 5, one of the most popular jazz recordings ever to threaten a boring dinner party. Elsewhere, he uses Ramsey Lewis trio's The In Crowd, a track he would use again in Irrational Man 20 years later. There was a commercial soundtrack released, but it didn't threaten the charts in any way. When you're smiling The score highlight is really those musical numbers. They were arranged by Dick Hyman, who had also worked with Alan for over a decade. They seem like a dry run for Alan's next film, the musical Everyone Says I Love You, 
where Hyman arranged all the musical numbers. The odd thing about the last one is that the credits run over the dancing chorus. Alan's usual closing credit sequence is a return to the Windsor condensed font on black. We get to the white on black eventually, but this is definitely out of character for Alan, and it certainly emphasises the good vibes of this film. Mighty Aphrodite was released on the 27th of October 1995. It played the film festival circuit, premiering at Venice and Toronto the month before. It did fairly well at the box office, taking over 6 million in the US and over 25 million overall. In awards land, the big news was Mira Savino. She had a showy role, the kind that the Academy really likes. She deserved her Oscar and it gave this film the reputation of having to catch this incredible new performer. Mighty Aphrodite did well in America, it did well around the world, it did well with awards, and it did well with critics. It just did well. It felt a little like the right place at the right time too. Alan had been essentially making independent cinema, on independent cinema level budgets, for years. Now in a world post-pulp fiction, there was a huge audience and a growing industry away from the major studios. Alan felt right at home there, and would for the rest of the 90s and beyond. This film is a lot of fun. It's funny for me that Miramax, the home of the best edgy American cinema, got such a nice film. I mean, yes, there are sex jokes and silliness, but anyone else would have made this film more sexy. This ends up being a very likeable comedy with a couple of really blue jokes. It's not like Sex, Lies and Videotape. I just find this film a joy all the way through. From the start, seeing Lenny search for Linda to all the music and all the fun in between. The Greek chorus are hilarious and inventive. I want them in every film. Part of me would like to see the longer version with the Amanda storyline and more of the chorus. I would watch a film of Kevin going back to the onion farm. It's all so likeable. Most importantly, I don't think Alan compromises any of his work to make this likeable film. It's still clever. All that Greek myth stuff is still a bit snobby. It's the kind of philosophical clever comedy that no one else makes. And here it feels like he does it so effortlessly. Sure, it doesn't have any great grand statement. It's not match point or crimes and misdemeanors. It's never mentioned as one of Alan's major works. It's kind of safe and unambitious. The production is predictably solid. And not that it always matters, but I think Alan spent more time caring about the writing of this one than the production of it. But that's part of what makes Alan's film a year schedule so great. Not every film is an event. Not every film has to break new production ground. Not every film has to change your whole world view. The music analogy for me is the album track. It's not a big radio single for the masses. It's the solid fan favorite. One for the people who get what this artist is trying to do. And who needs deeper meaning anyway? Lenny's search for answers lead him nowhere, but he has a lot of fun along the way. And if you can't have answers, you might as well have fun. Here's some fun facts about Mighty Aphrodite. Gino's, the restaurant from the opening scene, features very distinctive wallpaper. It's these zebras and arrows on a red background. Like so much in New York, it has its own story. Called the Prancing Zebras, they were designed when Gino's opened in 1945. In 1973, it was destroyed by fire, so new wallpaper was made to replicate the one-of-a-kind original. 
1973 replica was made by Flora Scalamandre, and it's a bestseller on her website. Film fans might also recognise the wallpaper throughout the family home in Wes Anderson's The Royal Tenenbaums. Alan has the reputation of being a Luddite when it comes to technology. In this film, there's the curious, casual inclusion of a mobile phone. Amanda carries around a Motorola MicroTAC phone, popular in the early 90s. Popular being a relative term compared to how phones are now. I just like that for all his reputation, Woody Allen characters are casually using mobile phones in 1995. Well, I wanted to talk to you about a special program that we have for bright students. Really? He qualifies? Oh, yes, absolutely. Sorry. Oh, sorry. Can... So great. Well, you, you, when you hear Hello? his, his uh, Hello? syntax, it's amazing. Verbal skills. Finally, Helena Bonham Carter told a funny story about working with Alan. During one scene, when the two were lying in bed together, Alan stayed mostly fully clothed, shoes on, in case anything happened, like a fire, and he had to flee. Thanks for listening to this episode. What do you think of Mighty Aphrodite? Is it still fun? Does Mira Sorvino still stand up? Let me know, as always, at woodyallenpages at gmail.com. And soon, because I'll be recording the Q&A episode any day now. So, here's the bit where I talk about ways to support me, the podcast and the website. The simplest way is a service called Buy Me A Coffee. It's a straight-up tip service, and I've gotten quite a few coffees from people, and I definitely drink those coffees. Link in the description alongside links to support me on Patreon as well. I do this for the love of it, but it does mean a lot that I can afford to devote part of my time to making this podcast. There's also other ways to support me, or the links in the description. I've got Woody Allen books you can buy, and the podcast artwork is available as tote bags and stickers and things. Of course, don't forget to spread the word. Tell a friend, leave me a review on iTunes, all those things. You've listened to podcasts before, right? You know the things that all podcasts ask for? I'm asking for them too. Well, that's it. Follow me on social media everywhere at Woody Allen Pages. There's the website, WoodyAllenPages.com. Not much going on in Woody Allen land. He's got his book out, Zero Gravity, and there's a bit of a rumour about a tour in France later in the year. So we'll bring you all that stuff on the website. Next week, we look at a Woody Allen film that pays tribute to the European masters. No, the real one that pays tribute to the European masters. Thanks for listening. I don't believe you're a coward. Only in actuality. This is not for me. Lenny, I need your help. No, I'm not a violence person. I I write about hockey and boxing and football. You know, this this is not...